Um, This morning, I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Just a a few verses this morning. Uh, We're looking at chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And as you find your place there, as a just a, a point of introduction, the the ministry of Jesus is in the, the area of Perea and Galilee, and he is still making his way to Jerusalem. And uh, this passage today is found in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, it's a well-known passage. I'm sure you've seen this passage depicted in some form of portrait or painting in a Sunday school class as Jesus is sitting there surrounded by children um, and today we're going to find out and look at exactly what is going on in this story and uh, how it applies to the church. So let me read this this morning. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when they saw it, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong, belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. kind of want to start with a, a statement this morning as we think about this passage. Um, the Lord has blessed us with... Um, the opportunity in this world to experience the birth and the joy of children. Um, Many of us today have uh, been blessed in such a way, uh, some to be blessed in the future. And uh, and what a joy it is for our church to be uh, sitting here, singing on a Sunday morning, looking into the faces of these young children and knowing uh, what a joy that is for us And yet, what a great responsibility uh, for the church to make these children disciples of the Lord Jesus. And so my desire today is that we would think about this statement as we look at this passage. And the statement is this, that the church's greatest concern should be for the welfare of children. And being founded in the Lord Jesus, who greatly cares for children, we should most importantly make disciples of them. And those are the the ways that we're going to break up that statement and look at that this morning. As you can imagine, the world today does not care about children. The world today, uh, as the days go by, is finding less and less value to children and their existence in the world. Obviously, the most obvious uh, sign or example of that would be the the rate of abortions every year the devaluing of human life i read this week that uh, in 2017 881,000 children were murdered in the US through the the act of abortion not only those children that are discarded on the altar of inconvenience but you also can see a rising tide in couples who are together and yet devalue the purpose or the 
the desire to even have children. Less and less couples in our world today um, are are choosing not to have children because of the way that they which they they want to live their life in freedom without inconvenience and so forth. You can actually see that as the abortion rate is going up, the birth rate across our United the United States and the world is going down. It's a very tragic and alarming truth and it's and it is uh, it is against the very creation of the Lord Jesus and the way that he designed all of creation for man and woman to come together and fill the earth. That we would come together and, and populate the earth, not just with warm bodies, but with uh, children that, that become followers of the Lord Jesus. Starting as image bearers, but eventually becoming uh, those who would reflect the image of, of Christ by faith. And so this, much, this must be our greatest concern as the church, that as we go forth with the gospel, that we are continuing to put an emphasis not just on the physical welfare of children, which should be very important, but that we would see Jesus as one who cares for children and most importantly, wants to see them become disciples of him. So first and foremost, we see in our passage today that our greatest concern should be, or one of our greatest concerns should be for the welfare of children. Notice in verse 13 that as Jesus is sitting there, and we're not necessarily told exactly where he is, in Matthew and Mark, this follows the, um, contextually the story and the message from last week on divorce. And so Matthew and Mark are tying this together with kind of the, the relational family, relational sphere here where he's saying, okay, I'm talking about divorce and marriage. Now let me put this story in about Jesus uh, and being surrounded by these children. What's interesting though is Luke, as he writes the story and he writes this account of Jesus, he puts this at the beginning of the story of the rich young ruler, which Mark also does to bring uh, to evidence and, and bring to emphasis the idea of entrance to the kingdom of God and how a person enters the kingdom. And as we'll see next week, the rich young ruler is not one who demonstrates someone who enters into the kingdom because he's not coming into the kingdom as someone like a child with childlike faith, with humility and, and trusting dependence upon God alone. And so the, 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 the purpose of, of this passage is to show us not that children belong to the kingdom, but that childlikeness is what all of us should demonstrate and, and, and be a, um, reflective in our own lives as people who come into the kingdom. That we should be childlike in our faith. R.C. Sproul makes the emphasis or the distinction that it's not childish in our faith, but it's childlike in our faith. Childish is immature, not willing to grow, not willing to, uh, to expand our mind and our understanding, not willing to, to, to step out in faith. Childlike is, is being a person who is humble, 
being a person who is fully dependent upon something greater than ourselves, who is the Lord Jesus. But let me back up. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. First of all, we see that as Jesus is there with his disciples, Mark chapter 10, verse 13 says that, that there are people bringing children to him that he might touch them. Matthew and Luke uh, give a little distinction. They say that, that they are bringing uh, these children to Jesus so that he might pray with them and bless them. This was a very common practice for teachers and rabbis and, and priests where parents would want to bring children to these priests or, or, or religious leaders so that they may say a prayer of blessing and, and, and ask, the, ask the God of the universe to bless this child as he grows uh, in maturity and physical well-being and most importantly, uh, believing in, in God. And so... It, it was very natural, and so these parents are coming, at the very least, to acknowledge that Jesus is a man of God. And they are bringing this, these children to him because they are concerned, and they are at least expressing some measure of faith. Most likely not a, a faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but some measure of faith and acknowledgement that God can bless their children. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, we have seen loved ones and friends of, sick, of the sick and friends of the outcasts bringing them to Jesus so that he might heal them. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus comes to Peter's house and Jesus heals his mother-in-law who's lying sick in the bed. And I think it's safe to imply from that text that Peter made that concern known to Jesus and there he's taking Jesus to his home in Capernaum so that he might heal his mother-in-law's infirmity. Later that night, the people of the community gather around the house and they're bringing demon-possessed people to Jesus so that he might heal them. And it's the devotion of these loved ones and friends that are examples of the care and the concern that the church must demonstrate in bringing people to Christ who need healing. And so at the very least, these parents most likely are just examples of what the church should be doing in our great care and concern for the welfare of children. Obviously, the, the greatest concern that we would have for the welfare of these children would be that they would come to know Christ. But Scripture is, is repeated over and over again how our concern cannot just be for their salvation, but also for their physical welfare. So that the church must be a church that is willing to seek the care and the love and the protection of the innocent. As Psalm 139 says that you formed me in my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it well. So we must acknowledge that the God of the universe has planned to bring children into this world. And not only should parents rejoice and cherish these children, but the church should cherish them. Now, I know in our gathering, as church begins to conclude and the kids get the green light to act a little crazy, 
This is probably the point in our spiritual journey where we need to be reminded to cherish children when they're running around in circles or they're banging on the walls of the nursery. That God has given us a great responsibility and a great joy to see his glory in creation, to acknowledge his purpose in bringing children into the world, and to acknowledge the responsibility we have not only to care for their welfare, but to care for their souls. I'm encouraged as a church knowing that we continually strive to serve children in this world, especially those who are suffering or abandoned. I'm thankful that many of you participate in organizations like Life Choices or St. Jude or the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home because you are seeking to raise awareness and support the care and the ministry for children and families in our city and in our world. May we as a church be the first ones on the front line to give sacrificially of our time and our resources to be proponents of the sanctity of life of both children inside and outside the womb. So ask yourself this morning, how are you promoting the physical welfare of children in our world? Is there more that you can do? Is there opportunities that you can take, money that you can sacrifice, time that you can devote? Because in doing so, you are doing it for the glory of God. And you are doing what Jesus is doing in this passage today. These parents are bringing them to Jesus so that they may bless him. And what does Jesus do? He receives them because he cares for children. He cares for them. And he loves them. But look at the attitude of the disciples. Instead of receiving these children, they rebuke the parents. This is an interesting reaction of these disciples. Once again, running an offensive line, trying to protect Jesus like he's the quarterback. Jesus sees this opportunity to care for these children, to show compassion to these parents. And the disciples are like, he doesn't have time for this. He does not have time for this type of trivial love. And so Jesus sees this as an opportunity. He sees this as an opportunity to remind and continually teach not just his disciples, but the church at large, an important lesson on compassion and how that fits into the gospel. The full scope of God's love is manifested not only in a change of heart, but in a change of actions. So we are not just seeking the spiritual welfare, we are also seeking that children be loved and cared for. That the church would be on the front lines of doing that more than the government does in our day. And the disciples are the very ones rebuking these parents, indignant. Sounds pretty similar, right? Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is on the hillside and there's a crowd around him and it's evening. And these, this crowd of people have been following Jesus and they're, they're hungry. 
And the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, listen, it's late. This is kind of a desolate, isolated place. The day's kind of over. Would you send the crowds away so they can go somewhere else and find something to eat? And then Jesus looks at them and he's like, no, you feed them. And it leads into this dialogue of, of, of one of the greater miracles that Jesus performs on the earth where he feeds the 5,000. And in the midst of that dialogue, he is trying to show uh, these disciples the, the understanding of the gospel and how the gospel portrays godliness and godly action in the world. Showing compassion and, and helping the innocent and helping the needy. Not because helping meeting their physical needs saves them, but because it is an opportunity to tell them about the loving and saving grace of the Lord Jesus. And so God forbid that we have such an attitude like that of the disciples where we are not caring for the welfare of children that we are looking to them much like the society which Jesus lived as they are less valuable to the world because they can't work and they can't earn a living and they sometimes are difficult and inconvenient. May we see their great value because the Lord of the universe created them and made those children in his image just as he made us in his image. And so the church should have a great concern for the welfare of children. And this is all being founded in the fact that the Lord Jesus greatly cares for them. That's why he looks at the disciples in this indignation and rebuke from his disciples. He looks at them in anger. He responds to his disciples in anger. They're put off by the people trying to get to Jesus. Jesus is put off by them. And he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. This, this response by Jesus is a, a, an act of compassion and intimacy that we should all gravitate to, that we should see in the Lord Jesus and, and, and be uh, so comforted in those, those ideas because he is the God of love. He is the one that shows compassion on the needy and the weak. Jesus does not just say, let the children come to me. He says, let the prostitute come to me. He says, let the outcast come to me. He says, let the sinner come to me. If Jesus does anything, he reminds us that, that he, he is the one who steps out of the glory and the majesty that he deserves. He steps away from that and he steps into this world full of sin. And he's willing to serve, not be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if you're living your life committed to the Lord Jesus Christ then you should be living your life in such a way that you are pointing people and directing people to the love and the compassion of Jesus while at the same time showing them a similar love and compassion.
So verse 16 tells us at the end of the passage that he takes them in his arms and he blesses them, laying his hands on them. It's all physical. It's all, it's all intimate and loving and compassion, uh, compassionate of the Lord Jesus to, to just surround himself with these children and, and love them. And like I said, we've seen those images and we've seen the understanding of, of, of that love when we uh, think about our own lives. Because this is all uh, spiritually induced. This is all uh, the point of a spiritual understanding that the people of God are the children of God that belong to him because of the Lord Jesus. And so if you follow Christ, then you follow him because Jesus took his arms and he surrounded you and loved you as you were, not as you were hoping to be. Children don't dress themselves up when company comes over. They're willing to come out in sometime nakedness. <laughs> They're not concerned about you. They don't care what you think about them. They're living life. They're, they're in, enjoying the world and, they, and the things uh, that, that they have. Can you imagine your three-year-old going, oh, we have company coming over? I need to go clean the house, and I need to go get my room straightened up, and I need to put on a nice outfit. There probably are kids out there like that, but you made them that way. And this is how we should come to Christ. We should come to Christ completely aware and open and, and unhindered of who we are in our sin and our brokenness. And we come to him knowing that whether you are an outcast or, or, or whatever you might call yourself, which is all the same, it's sinner, that Christ comes and, and wraps his arms around us and loves us because of grace. Not because of duty, not because of some condition that you've earned. You are loved by God because of his character, not because of your condition. And I couldn't help but think that as I'm reading this, that in Jesus' love for children, in this compassion that he has for children. I think the same truth is applied to children in this world or who children who don't make it in this world. As a young church, we experienced a great loss in our church family. And I was so thankful that in the midst of losing a small child to go to heaven, we were able to hold fast to the truth and the doctrine of God that he loves children and by his electing grace, he allows them who have never heard the gospel, who have never believed or had the opportunity to believe, he allows them by his mercy and grace to be forever with him in heaven. That shouldn't be a difficult doctrine for us to understand, but it is a true doctrine. And it is a true doctrine founded on the belief of the mercy and the grace of God. It 
It's a, it's a truth that the atoning work of Christ on the cross would be applied to a child who does not have the mental capacity or doesn't have the opportunity to understand their sin, to repent of their sin, and to believe in Christ. Because God is a God of mercy, a God of love who shows compassion to the undeserved even to children who die without an opportunity to express faith in Christ. But here's what this does not mean. This does not mean that all children belong to the kingdom. It does not mean that all children belong to the kingdom of God because they're children. It also does not mean that all children belong to the kingdom of God because you belong to the, chi- the kingdom of God. And you're like, what is actually, exactly are you talking about? Well, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters use this passage as a support for infant baptism. Because they would say, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so them as children, which they would add as a disclaimer, children of believing parents, they belong to the children of, of uh, those, or they are the children of those believing parents, thus they belong to the kingdom of God. John Calvin, the great reformer, had said that he believed that God made mysterious work, mysteriously worked to bring about at least a spark or seed of faith in the baptisms of elect infants. Of course, they would subsequently express that faith fully when they came to the age if they lived that long, but nonetheless, they had at least a modicum of faith as infants and thus could be rightly baptized. Now, I have tremendous respect for Reformed brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian Church, but I disagree wholeheartedly that children by which this verse is talking about would have faith given to them as children. As I said before, we believe in the expression of faith in Jesus Christ alone to the children in this world that have the opportunity to express it. And thus, if there is a child in this world that is growing up and hearing the gospel and understanding sin, if they express that faith, then by all means they can believe and trust in Christ. It's been given to them. They do not uh, receive the faith and the gift of salvation merely by belonging to parents who do. And thus they should not be baptized as infants. Matter of fact, I think all of this argument hinges on the word, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The Greek word there, toyatos, means such as or a similarity. Jesus is not saying that these physical children should receive the gift of faith because they belong to believing parents and should belong to the kingdom of God. He's making a comparison of similarity. He's saying, as these children are coming to me, they should not be hindered. They are coming in dependence and trust 
so all people should come into the kingdom with childlike faith. Coming into the kingdom as children of the kingdom, with dependence upon God. Thus, I would say that children in this passage are representing merely a shadow of God's people. Just as marriage last week was a shadow of the gospel, so children represent for us the way in which we should approach God. And Jesus makes that clear in verse 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus is not jumping points from verse 14 to 15. He's staying in the same theme that if you are going to receive the kingdom of God, if you're going to be a part of it, if you're going to enter into it, then come into it like a child. Come into it depending fully on God. A few years ago, my family had the opportunity to go to Spain. My sister and brother-in-law were missionaries in Madrid, and we had the opportunity of taking four of our children on a, on a plane, flying, I think, 11 hours. Thank the Lord for technology. And we got to Madrid, and for two weeks, we never got into a car. Madrid is a, it's like New York City. It's a metropolis. It's, it's bustling. There's people everywhere. And you don't need a car. You just ride a subway everywhere you go. Now, I want you to imagine from the oldest to the youngest, my family and my sister-in-law's family, which also had four children at the time, all traveling down the road, down the sidewalk, getting onto subways with strollers, Imagine this, it's, it's comical. But not once did my children ever come to me and pull onto my shirt and say, Dad, let me take the lead. I'll get us to where we need to go. Not once did they say, oh, I got this. I know which subway to get on and which exit to get off of and another subway to get on. No, they were completely and totally dependent on the adults in this situation. And as we come to the the to consider the kingdom of God and being a part of that and belonging to it. If we come to that with arrogance and pride and confidence, then we will never enter the kingdom. But if we come humbly like a child, if we are willing to to surrender ourselves to God and his sovereignty, If we are willing to say, Lord, I acknowledge you as Lord. I don't make you Lord, but I acknowledge you as the Lord of my life. Then the Bible says we will enter the kingdom. We will be saved. This is the approach by which we must come to God. David read it this morning. Proverbs 3, 5 and through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not some of your heart, all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That doesn't mean lean on some of your understanding. It says do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing for the, uh, to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So if you're here this morning questioning if you belong to the kingdom of God, the simple question is, have you come and approached the opportunity to enter the kingdom as a child? Because the role of the church is to ask that of everyone, including our children. And so the last concept to consider this morning is that as the church's great concern should be for the welfare of children and being found in the Lord Jesus who greatly cares for children, we should most importantly make disciples of them. See, I think Jesus is merely saying, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such or similarly the opportunity for these children and these adults and their parents belongs to the kingdom of God. There's opportunity to receive Christ if you're a child. There's opportunity to receive Christ as an adult if you believe in the only way to salvation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. There's no other way. It's not through your parents. It's not through good works. It's not from fixing yourself up and re uh, uh, renovating yourself so that you can clean yourself off for God. It's coming as you are, depending fully on him to save you. And so as a church, as parents, as grandparents, we must be committed to faithfully invite our children, our neighbors, to accept the good news of Jesus Christ. We must fulfill the great commission in our families by making disciples of our children so that they might enter the kingdom of God. Turn with me, if you can, back to the Old Testament, Psalm 78. It's a pretty familiar passage. Psalm 78, a masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but to tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob he, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might show them the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful. I want to ask you this morning to commit in your life, in your family's life, in the life of this church to participate in making disciples of children. 
And I think this passage is a great example as an application, as, a, as a, a real commitment to the word of God, make the commitment to be a disciple maker of your children so that they may come to know who God is and what he has come to do. And there's three things in this passage that I would point you to. Number one, teach your children who God is. Asaph writes in this psalm who God is, his character, his faithfulness, his willingness to establish a testimony in Jacob, appointing a law in Israel. He is a sovereign God who rules with authority and yet shows compassion and grace for his people, for his glory. Teach him who God is. Teach him about his character. Teach him about the things that God is that they can never emulate. Teach him about his transcendence. Like, how am I going to teach a three-year-old transcendence? It's hard. But you have to understand transcendence first. You have to understand that that God is a God that, that does not need mankind. His God, he is so powerful and, and great that he does not need us, and yet he has chosen to come down to earth. He has chosen us to reveal himself and his transcendence. Because as teaching your children about his transcendence, they will not think of God as some God that they can fashion into any type of God they want, that he is a supreme God that is to be worshipped and reverenced and feared. But not just teach teach them who he is, but also teach them what he's done. In verse 7 of Psalm 78, he says that we should set our hope on God and not forget the words and the works that he has done. That we should point our God, I mean our children to Christ and how the Father sent the Son in the world to die for sinners so that there could be reconciliation and forgiveness, and how that's been the plan from the very beginning to the end of time, that Christ is the hope that we set our hope upon, not the hope of this world. So teach him who God is. Teach him what God has done, not to forget his works, not to forget his deeds, but lastly and most importantly, Teach them who they are. Verse 8 reminds them, he says, that we should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. What's the, the psalmist saying? He's saying, don't forget, we should teach our children all the failures and the mistakes that have been made, that God's grace covers, that God's mercy was abundant to cover and and provide. I like to say, teach your children they're little devils, not little angels. So parents, how are you setting out to make disciples of your children? How are you teaching them the truths of God in your home? If you don't have a plan to come together as a family and have conversation about God and his word, to pray together, let me plead with you today to begin that process. There are so many great resources that we can point you to 
to help you present a clear gospel, to equip you to teach God's word to, to your children. And then there's grandparents. Oh, grandparents. How do you use your time to instruct your children in the ways of God? I know that you know this, but it's healthy to say that you are more than a glorified babysitter. That you have the knowledge of God's word to pass down to your grandkids. So let me encourage you, redeem the time that you have with them so that their memories of you are not just the bowlfuls of candy that they, you shove in their hands or the fun places that you take them, but most importantly, the God, godly wisdom that you impart to them. Because generations that are made, where disciples are being made, not only with the, the efforts of parents, but also the efforts of grandparents, that is a blessed child. Because we can't forget about the church. Because coming alongside parents and coming alongside grandparents is the body of Christ that also participates in the making of disciples of these children. We provide resources. We strengthen the knees of the weak. We guide and direct so that the family unit is strengthened for the glory of Christ. Because there is one important truth that we must understand. If you are not committed to make disciples of your children, Satan is. It's no mistake that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is teaching on the family unit. He's teaching wives and husbands. He's teaching children and parents. He's teaching slaves and masters. He's teaching the whole family unit in Paul's day. And what does he lead to next? Spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6. I love this quote by John Flavel. He says, if you neglect to instruct children in the way of holiness, will the devil neglect to instruct them in the way of wickedness? No. If you will not teach them to pray, he will teach them to curse, swear, and lie. If ground be uncultivated, weeds will spring up. So understand that the instruction in the making of disciples from families and grandparents and churches is a necessary act for the glory of God and because we are in spiritual warfare. And what a great responsibility, but God has not left us alone because those who believe and trust in him, who have entered the, the kingdom of heaven through the, the humility and the grace that we have through Christ, that we come into this kingdom and we are equipped with the spirit of God and the living word of God, that we can teach them these things to fight against the wiles of the devil. To fight against the wickedness and the evil of this world. To see their own sin and to see the hope that they can have in Christ alone for salvation.
And as I said before, folks, this passage isn't just about making disciples of children. Jesus is just using children as an example. This is what we should do of all people. Teaching, the, teaching them these truths, passing them on so that they might pass them on to generations upon generations. It's an act of multiplication, not addition. And so understanding these truths and understanding this responsibility, would you join with me in prayer as we close? Father, we...